Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. Welcome to our first podcast of 2020. First of the year, first of the decade. Looking back over the last decade in genomics, it's really been a tremendously exciting time. There's been so much that's been discovered that's exciting to researchers and observers because we've learned so much about the genome. The technology has gotten better, faster, cheaper, at a rate that chip manufacturers can only envy. Forget about Moore's Law. I guess you could say we've taken them to school. Maybe I should say we've taken them to church. We have church's doctrine. It has gotten better so fast. But as genome skeptics are always in a rush to point out, and, and it is important, improvements in technology have not always been reflected in improvements in outcomes for patients. So far, we have a limited number of areas where genomic medicine has moved the bar in terms of preventing or curing disease. So far. Thus far. And one of these successes, one in the win column for sure, is cancer susceptibility testing. This is an area where we've improved our ability to identify those at risk. And we have evidence-based strategies for helping those at higher risk stay healthy. And yet, Clearly, there's room for improvement there. Anyone working in cancer genetics knows the frustration of not being able to find a pathogenic variant when you have a family where there's obviously something going on, of getting results where you have to tell the family you don't know what this, whether or not this result is pathogenic or if it is, what really it means to them. We know uncertainty is still a very hard result, and everyone's looking to reduce that uncertainty. So we're going to talk today with some folks from Ambry about a new test that's intended to improve the state of the art by generating not just more positive results, that too, but also more certainty about the nature of the variant. So joining us on the Beagle today, Dr. Rashid Karam. Karam, how do you correct my pronunciation? I don't... Yeah, no, that's correct, Karam. Karam. Director of Ambry's Translational Genomics Lab, an MD-PhD by way of University of California in San Diego, Portugal, and Brazil. That's pretty cool. Uh, who works primarily in cancer genomics, and uh, Holly LaDuca, Senior Manager of Clinical Affairs Research at Ambry, who got her degree in genetic counseling at Northwestern. So hi, Holly. Hi, Rashid. Welcome to the Beagle. Hi, Laura. Hi. Thanks for having us today. My pleasure. So I thought to start, uh, I want to hear about the new test, but maybe we'd start by talking about, you know, cancer susceptibility testing, like where are we now with the idea of, you know, where is there room for improvement? So when we test a, an individual, how likely are we now to get a clinically useful result, right? Like I, 20 years ago when I was going through school, we would talk about being more likely to get a variant of uncertain significance than a positive variant. I know that's no longer true, but sort of where are we? Yeah, so Rashid, maybe I'll take the first part of this question about where we're at now, and then if you want to expand from there on what what we can gain with RNA testing. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the last decade has been really exciting in cancer genetics because we have introduced multi-gene panel testing. And so now we're testing many more genes at the same time um, than we did before. So we used to test BRCA1 and 2 and then pause there unless they're uh, was a striking history of something else, but now we're able to assess multiple genes at the same time. We can uh, perform next-generation sequencing analysis and comprehensive analysis for deletions and duplications for those genes. Um, and so while that's been great, we still wind up with these families where 
we're scratching our heads saying, okay, this is the classic hereditary breast and ovarian cancer family. There's early onset breast cancer, bilateral breast cancer, ovarian cancer in this family, yet we haven't identified, um, you know, the, uh, the causative um, variant in the family. So we've been looking at ways to improve the diagnostic yield of testing at Ambry. And so to, to your question, Laura, um, the, I would say approximately 10% of the time patients end up um, having a, a clinically actionable mutation identified. That's going to change depending on the indication for referral. For example, we know that the diagnostic yield is a little bit higher in ovarian cancer, for example, and in some other settings as well. But I would say that approximately 10% is a good rule of thumb. And uh, Rashid can tell us more about um, what we're doing with RNA. What percentage of people get back a a variant of uncertain significance with today's testing? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It really, it depends on a number of factors. So it will depend on the number of genes you're testing. So the, with the um, the more genes you test, the higher, generally speaking, the uh, the higher the variant of uncertain significance rate is going to be. Um, and then we also know that it varies based on ethnicity. So we know that um, for certain minority groups, the uh, VUS rate is higher, um, just because we don't have as much information on how to classify variants in a given population. But there have been multiple efforts over the years to help in- improve that. Um, we uh, we actually had a paper from last year out of our laboratory on our uh, multi-gene panel testing cohort, and there's a supplemental table in there for anybody who's interested that shows the um, the positive in the US rate by test. So you can see a direct correlation between um, the number of genes. Um, tested and how that um, corresponds to the positive rate and the inconclusive rate. Mm-hmm. Drives so the more genes, it's going to drive that up. Absolutely. So the RNA test, I guess I think of it, Rashid, as sort of a mm-hmm. a, a functional study in a sense that you can tag on. Is yeah. that a reasonable way to look at it? it, it- Yes, and I think actually your, your introduction was great because now we can reflect of, over what happened on the last decade, too. Like, in, in, in the last decade was really the decade of, of the DNA, the, the DNA sequencing being available in the clinics. So now clinicians can order, insurance companies can, uh, are reimbursing DNA tests. Uh, uh, also, it, it became much cheaper and in, in therefore available to, to most uh, here in the United States, and I think that was the major development and success story over the ne- last decade. But there are limitations from what we were doing, right? So I think we, we, we make great progress uh, uh, about uh, testing the DNA, but uh, the limitations persisted, which are mostly with regards to how the, the interpretation of what we are finding at the DNA level. Uh, means the, the the significance of what we are found uh, we are finding at the DNA level, and 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 I think that's the, the challenge for the next decade because if we keep doing what we have been doing over the last decade, do DNA sequencing only, uh, the 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 the, DNA, uh, the the positive ratio, right, the, the clinically actionable variants, um, and the VUS variants, they will probably remain uh, similar. Uh, over time, or we know, don't expect to see any dramatic improvement. And I think for us to actually have a, a move forward and to improve our ability to understand what is on people's genomes, uh, we need to move for, uh, go beyond DNA, and we need to start testing other molecules. And, and I think that's really where the next decade, a lot of advanced 
will be made. Uh, we must, uh, genetic testing, it's almost uh, synonymous in the, in the last decade of like DNA testing. And I think now we are reaching a time where uh, uh, genetic testing should mean uh, an analysis of other molecules like DNA, RNA, and also protein. And, 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 and like you mentioned, we, we, we launched uh, 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 in September last year uh, the first commercially available uh, pair DNA and RNA sequencing test. And, 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 and we already have seen just with a limited uh, time scope of less than a year, a significant improvement uh, in two fronts. One, it's uh, what the cases that were previously classified as negatives, we, because of limitations of the DNA testing, uh, uh, by adding RNA, we now suddenly can uh, cover mutations of, or pathogenic variants that we were not able to do so only by looking at DNA. And on the second, uh, second improvement that uh, so far we have seen with the DNA is on the reduction of those variants of a non-significance too. Because sometimes by just looking at the DNA, we don't really understand what a variant is doing and we need some functional output. Uh, uh, and RNA provides that, that line of evidence that allows us to better understand those DNA variations. So let's talk about each of those separately a little bit because I think it's interesting. Identifying mutations we wouldn't see so that's saying alterations in the RNA lead us backwards to the DNA to find mutations that we are either in a spot we didn't look for or we wouldn't have thought was significant. And they sort exactly. Of, so, so those type of observations, and I, I looked at yeah. the numbers on it, and I would say that each of these areas, it's, it's not a game changer, but it like bumps it up, right? It just bumps each up. You're not... Uh, doubling the number of people identified, but it's like 9 or 10% increased yield. Um, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so, so, so you would then add those, right? Like that's something that uh, one would hope a few years out would be on the original panel, right? You could then go back and sort of say like, oh, this change in DNA is something we should be looking for in our original genome testing. Right, and, and, and like you say, it, it's a little bit of, of, of a shift of the way uh, we use genetic testing. Instead of like de- detecting the variant using the DNA, we actually use the RNA to detect a potential abnormality that will help us uh, look at the specific area of the gene where a mutation may be at, at the DNA level, right? And, and, uh, and, and with regards to the clinical significance uh, uh, I actually think that this uh, has been a, a very important uh, breakthrough, and, and the numbers that we are seeing right now are e- uh, equivalent to the impact that uh, 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 deletion and duplication analysis had when it was first introduced to clinical testing back in 2006, right? So, and that was pretty much, I think, the, the last major jump in positive yield that we had. So uh, before, we were not able to detect, for example, if one axon was deleted or duplicated from the coding sequence of a gene, and then by uh, uh, adding uh, new technologies, we, we were suddenly able to do so. And that, that reflected on an increase in the positive view of about 5% in, in a relative increase. And we are seeing something similar uh, or even higher depending on the gene. Uh, uh, like we presented data at the, at the NSGC conference uh, last year in, in, in October 
showing that some genes like ATM, for example, we see a 19% increase in the positive, relative increase in the positive yield. PRCA1, 14%. MSH2, 13%. So it, 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 like, it really matters for those patients. So, you know, it's interesting. I remember when we introduced the, the rearrangement panel, there was a lot of discussion at that point in time. What were the obligations of the labs regarding going back and recontacting patients? for whom you did not get a result, and saying, hey, we now have something to add to testing. And, and that was, it's a really controversial thing, because we contact a pain in the ass, right? You can't reach everybody. What are one's ethical obligations? I, I, I think, do you feel that this is going to reintroduce that question of recontact for clinicians? Yeah, uh, I think that that's a great point, and, and, and this just highlights something that we have experienced in the past, and I think it will just become more and more frequent, right? Because genetics, is, it's not a static field, and, and we don't want to be so. We want to be constantly evolving. We want to add new technologies so we can uh, uh, help as many patients as possible, and, and this is a question that will come up every time a new technology is introduced uh, that, that allows us to detect variants that previously we were not able to do so. So, um, and, and I think that, that's a healthy part of, of what's going on. And I think that's something that, that we ex- should expect in, in, in especially clinicians and genetic counselors. Uh, uh, this should be part of, of, of our conversation with patients so they understand that uh, with the techniques that we have currently, this is what we can find. But that doesn't mean that 10, 20 years, and shouldn't mean, that, that that will not change because uh, 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 like I always like to say that we are in the infancy of this business, right? If you think we, we have been doing this clinically for like like a decade, how, where we will be in 20, 30 years from now, who knows? Yeah, yeah, and I think that we sure. should expect, yeah, we should expect that things will change, things will evolve, and then patients eventually need to be retested to benefit from those improvements. Holly, have, have you thought about that? Yeah, you both bring up really good points here. Um, so yeah, I think we, we saw this happen with you know, the addition of deletion and duplication testing, and also then again with multi-gene panels. You know, people who had patients in the past who were tested you know, with using single gene testing, and then you know they were questioning whether or not they had an obligation to recontact patients about this new testing that had become available. And I think we'll face I think we'll face the same things. One thing that we're hoping to do to help guide that conversation is to analyze our data in a way where we can give um, some phenotype-specific um, estimates as to the, um, the increase in diagnostic yield to help guide that. So it might be that for, you know, for families with a really striking history, or for, let's say, for example, they have a striking history for Lynch syndrome, you know, maybe those are the ones that we start with where we think we're going to see the highest increase in diagnostic yield. So we're actively analyzing our data to help contribute to that conversation offer some guidance as to you, when you might be more or less likely to find something in a, in a patient who you tested previously. Um, I think that sometimes it comes down to, though, you know, what are, what are the resources at the clinic level? You know, I think that's a, a decision that each clinic has to make on their own regarding um, their bandwidth um, and ability to accommodate an influx of patients in an already in a, in a, um, a field where we're already strapped for resources. And then, um, I think another thing that um, we can do to help is just continue to put those types of um, talking points and clinic notes where we let patients know, like Rashid said, that, you know, genetics is not static. You know, there are always advances in genetic testing. There are always 
changes in variant interpretation. And so we encourage patients to um, to uh, follow up with their healthcare provider so that they can um, have an opportunity to talk about um, advances in testing and, and any changes to their test results. And so I think we should continue to do those things and then look and see what the um, you know, relative increase in diagnostic yield in a yeah, phenotype-specific I, way um, I think that it, we can help. I think ultimately uh, a lot of that not um, because it's ethical or moral or whatever, but simply on a practical matter has to be put onto the patient. They have to know that they need to check back in and so on. And the part maybe that falls to us is to get the word out there so that people see articles and hear things and sort of get the message that if they've been tested and they don't have an answer, checking back in is a good idea. But it, So I want to also go back to what you said in terms of how RNA testing can speak to the clinical significance of variants where we, where we are, we're uncertain of the clinical significance of the VUS. So how does that work, Rashid? Yeah, so uh, VUS, is, is, it, they are a challenge, right? They are a challenge to, to clinicians because they are difficult to manage. I think they are especially difficult for patients to understand what they mean. It's a, it's, it's a complex medical terminology, too. And, but also for us, uh, diagnostic labs, I always say that we feel defeated every time we send a classification of a VUS means that we don't understand what's going on. In, in RNA, it, it, it's, an, it's an additional tool that we can use to better understand uh, uh, a specific type of variants that, affecting, uh, that affect splicing of the gene, right? And, 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 and the way we use this currently, we use this following uh, guidelines from the American, uh, American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, the ACMG guidelines. So we, we use the RNA data as a piece of evidence, uh, 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 to help us classify. We don't use this as a standalone. We use this as a, as a piece of a, the puzzle that uh, when we put out together, hopefully we will have a better idea of whether a variant is pathogenic and benign. Uh, uh, it is a strong piece of evidence, and that helps, uh, specifically when you're looking at variants that are located in the non-coding regions of the gene, because we understand now that that's, if they are to impact RNA, most the, 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 the one way that they sh they can do so is by affecting splicing and, and RNA sequencing can provide us this evidence directly. A lot of what we have been using nowadays, uh, uh, we used to do, was uh, in silico predictions, com com computational predictions, and we know that those computational predictions they uh, they don't they don't are not correct. Uh, in, in a significant proportion of the times, and, and, and which reflects consequently of we not applying more than uh, supporting evidence to that. So to have the ability to actually have real data telling us what a variant does at the RNA level and consequently applying this as a strong evidence, that's the game changer here for us because we uh, allow us to better understand the variant and significantly decrease classification of VUSs, specifically for those alterations that affect splicing. Mm -hmm. I, honestly, uh, this is an area where I think RNA, this is the tip of the iceberg. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I'm in the mood to be reflective, right? Brand new decade. Yep. And I mm -hmm. do think that one of the great areas of opportunity for genomic medicine is to be able to move past what genes we have to what genes we use. And so to look at, assess, measure, quantify RNA allows us to talk about not just what genes you carry, but what's in use. 
and hopefully someday very specifically what's in use in this spot or in this area, you know. Uh, I, I think that has sort of unlimited medical potential. I absolutely agree. I agree 100%. This is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we, we hear, we, we're doing one specific type of analysis only of the RNA at this point, which is the splicing profile. profile. So we're looking at the, the splicing patterns, but there are many other uh, uh, benefits that we can get out of uh, RNA information. For example, a little specific expression, uh, 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 differentially expression levels as well, uh, in, 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 in also, even by adding RNA, we still have a significant proportion of cases that are now to be negative. That, that's the reality, which tells me that there is a lot that we still don't understand. And, 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 and that's in part because maybe we don't understand all the genes uh, uh, responsible for cancer susceptibility. You know, maybe there are other things that, uh, that in, impact, for example, uh, uh, expression of the gene like in the promoter or uh, enhancers, uh, other areas that are not so well characterized and therefore uh, not necessarily uh, used clinically uh, yet. And I think it, that's part of that, that learning curve. And, and the only way we will learn and we will understand better is by looking at it. So I think to, we really need to get the data and do a lot of research on it and to really figure it out what, what's going on. And, and that's the only uh, way I see that we can do to actually ha uh, help more uh, patients by improving the positive yield and by decreasing the U.S. Yeah. So, so we've talked about identifying more people who are entirely missed, and we've talked about clarifying variants of uncertain significance, both very big areas. And there's another thing with, so obviously panel testing has brought a great deal of advantages, uh, identified many more people, uh, simplified the process of testing in many ways. One of the negatives, one of the knocks on panel testing is you have an awful lot of genes where you get a positive result and you're really, you know, it's not like BRCA1 and 2, right? You're really not sure what advice you can give patients based on that positive result. Uh, smaller risks, um, more uncertainty, and so on. So is it also possible to use RNA to increase the certainty of the information we give people about pathogenic variants in less well-known genes, less well-characterized genes, I should say? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and uh, RNA, I, I, I think the, we benefit the most with RNA for the genes that we understand the better, right? So like genes, you, like you mentioned, uh, the lynch genes or the, uh, the HBOC genes, uh, we understand the better. So th what RNA at this point is doing, it's helping us to identify, okay, this variant results in a loss of function allele. And we know uh, the loss of function in this gene causes this disease. So I, I think that, that there is still a lot of work that we have to do to just understand what some of those moderate penetrance genes actually do. And, uh, uh, and I think there are many other areas that will help us uh, uh, to do so in the future, and RNA is one of them. Mm -hmm. So there's one thing I just wanted to add on that. So for, for genes like BRCA1 and 2 that have been well studied, there's been quite a bit of information published on the natural landscape of splicing uh, for those genes. But for some other genes that have 
haven't really emerged in genetic testing until we started testing them on panels, we don't know as much about their splicing profiles. And so one important part of our test is actually to compare um, the RNA results to results from a pool of reference controls, um, because it's possible for us to see a transcript that looks like it should be abnormal, um, but then we go back and check in controls and see that half of controls carry that same transcript. So it's, it's much less likely that that uh, would would cause any um, would be causative of disease, and so um, for these genes that have been less well studied, it's going to be just really helpful for us to gain a better understanding of uh, the splicing landscape in general, and that's the thing we're continuing to track. And are you looking at RNA for each gene that's on the cancer panel? We are we are looking at RNA for eighteen genes on our hereditary cancer panel. Rashid, maybe you want to add a little bit more about our reason for selecting those genes based on expression? Yeah, those genes are exactly those that we actually, uh, uh, because this is a clinical test, right? So we we really want to to start doing this and set a strong foundation. So we we focus on on, uh, 18 genes that are well understood clinically, and those include the HBOC, Genes, the Lynch genes, and some more, uh, some other syndromic genes like NF1, P10, TP53, CDH1. Those, those are genes that uh, that are there are a lot of research out there and clinical data available that really support that they are indeed involved with cancer predisposition. So we thought that that would be a, a, a good start of, uh, for something new such as RNA analysis. So when you started with this test, it was a by reflex, right? So, no, sorry, not by reflex. That you, if if somebody took a test, took the cancer panel, didn't get a result, they had the option to to try the RNA testing. Is that is that right? And you had kind of, Holly said you had kind yeah, of so, low uptake on that. So how did we? That's how we we started doing RNA analysis as uh, uh, on our research in department, uh, in our R and D department at the Embry Translational Genomics Lab at the ATG Lab. Uh, in, back in 2016, and at that time, what we were doing was like you get tested at the panel, and you find a you have a VUS, and the VUS uh, is predicted to affect splicing, but we don't have the enough evidence to classify the VUS as pathogenic or benign, depending on the predictions. And then we offer to the patients a follow-up test. Look, uh, send us another blood sample. We can do RNA analysis on it, and that has. We believe that that will help uh, us better understand what the, what that VUS does, and, uh, and, and indeed we we conclude that retrospective analysis. Uh, that's how we were calling uh, uh, last year, uh, and we published that on the on a JAMA Network open paper, which is open access, in in uh, demonstrating that this approach really worked with one big caveat, the patient actually need to send us another blood sample. And as you were mentioned, we, we, we observed that only 10%, we offered this test to almost, to almost 1,000 people and, and, and only 100 people actually send us the additional blood sample. That's when we realized, uh, uh, and, and for those that did, we saw that like over 80% of the, case, the VUSs, we were able to reclassify them as either pathogenic or benign. So we understood this is a very powerful technique. The limitation is really, it's really getting another sample here in the lab so we can isolate RNA to do the assay. That's when we actually had idea, why don't we just, if this is as relevant as DELDUP 
analysis, uh, structure variation analysis, right? And we offer this to every patient. Why we would not offer uh, to all patients as well uh, uh, RNA analysis up front? And that's the approach that we decide to take, and, and, and that's where we are finding out those new alterations. You know, it's very interesting yeah, and, to me uh, yeah, that you had this low uptake because it didn't cost anything, right? It didn't cost right? anything, yeah. but also, uh, but, but it did add extra time. For genetic counselors are busy, and like you said, you have to recontact the patient, you have to reschedule another appointment, in uh, in and, and, and there goes months until all the storms are aligned and we get a sample here and then we were doing this as research right and uh, so we really thought like well this actually deserves to be done in a, the cl- at the clinical level now this test is done at a clinical lab uh, fully automated so clinical tt research you would have to wait a few months to get your results back now you get the results back uh, uh, in, in 7 14 days Right, so uh, uh, it, it's it's really fantastic if you think it's really like uh, RNA sequencing is not something that we invented. What we did is to actually put this into the clinical workflow and be able to deliver uh, both DNA and RNA sequencing uh, sequencing results to our patients in a clinical timeline mm-hmm. with the least impact possible to to medical providers. Mm-hmm. I- yeah, and I think the clinical timeline there is key. Uh, yeah, because, um, you know, there's with more and more um, approvals for targeted therapies, um, I think it's just going to be so important for us to, to just get that answer right away for a patient. And for these families who have uh, a splicing alteration that would have otherwise been the U.S. with DNA testing alone or with a deep intronic alteration that would have been missed with DNA testing alone, um, I mean, that can make the difference between whether or not they re- they're able to be put on a therapy that can help them immediately. And the other thing I'll add is that um, that is kind of one of the other limitations to how we were offering the testing before with offering it in a, in, a, um, in follow-up to DNA testing is that you didn't have that opportunity to look for uh, deep intronic mutations. So we would, we would, if we found an alteration that we thought could benefit from additional splicing analysis, I mean, those are easy to, to, to flag because we see, oh, okay, this patient has an alteration at the plus three position it's a VUS. We think splicing data would really help us here. But for those patients with negative results, it's really hard to, to cherry pick which of those you should, you know, you should perform RNA testing in. And so now we're able to, to do that for, for everybody by offering it concurrently um, to analyze for deep intronic alterations. It's interesting to me in sort of a general way because it speaks to the uh, what's lost and what's won when you look at opt-in and opt-out systems, really. So when testing is automatic, you, you lose choice to a certain extent, right? You know, you, it's sort of just a big package and people don't pick and choose how much they want. And this isn't really necessarily speaking to this test, but in general to testing that comes as a package. The same way with the panels, people lose the ability to pick and choose and be like, well, I'd like to know about a risk for this, but that type of cancer... I don't want to know about because I don't feel like there's something I could do. The more we package things together, the more power the test has, the less choice the person has. But from what you're saying, until you made this a reflex and an automatic option, you were losing an awful lot of people who could have been helped. So I just find that interesting. Right. Right. Yeah, we, 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 yeah our predictions are that thousands of people. 
over time, right? Remember that we test we tested hundreds of thousands of individuals, and 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 when the numbers start to accumulate, uh, that's when you realize the 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 significant proportion of individuals that we had that would have benefited from this test that uh, didn't. Yeah, a part of that as part of that paper, Rashid was talking about the one in Dama Network Open. Um, we went back to our cancer panel cohort to and estimated the frequency. Of, um, of patients who had alterations that would have benefited, they, that for which the interpretation would further benefit from um, RNA testing. And it was 2.4% of patients who had a result that could have been um, clarified uh, mm-hmm. with RNA testing. So something so, for the yeah, cancer counselors out there to be thinking about, <laughs> you know, yeah. reaching back out to people, <laughs> yeah. more work for genetic counselors. <laughs> And reaching out to those 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 families that didn't get a result, but it is very exciting, and I, I do honestly feel that uh, this is the tip of the iceberg with with RNA, and I wonder when other measures of RNA, quantity and tissue specificity, and so on. I don't I don't even know what what should I be looking for. What's the next big thing in RNA that's going to be clinically significant? I think it's the ability for us, like you mentioned, to detect that a gene is turned on or turned off for other reasons. Like it could be like you have a a deletion of a regulatory element that that we don't even know exists, but just, or methylation, for example. So by looking at the RNA, we can pretty much like detect if a gene or an allele is on and off. And and I think that's going to be the next thing for RNA. This is where genomics is going to overlap with biomarkers and become one and the same thing, right? You know? Uh, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. Which I think is a good thing. You know, we've been thinking about these things as separate, but we really should be thinking about them, you know, together. So. Yeah, yeah. It's it, exciting. Uh, it, it, the Venn diagrams merge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this, is a, this dec- has been a, a perfect topic, thank you, to start the decade because it's extremely forward-looking and exciting. Uh, so I thank you very much for, for joining us today. We're um, running to the end of our show, and um, I appreciate it. It's a, it's, a, it's a great subject. Um, happy New Year to you both. Thank you. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to all of our listeners. And please take a look at BeagleLanda.com, follow the show, follow me on Twitter at Laura Hersher, and have a great year, everybody. Bye.